He let too many things go by, little things that... What little things? Listen, when these fellows don't ask questions, it's because they know the answer's already and they figure they'll be hurt. Maybe it's also possible for a lawyer to be just plain stupid, isn't it? I mean, it's possible. You sound like you met my brother-in-law once. <laughs> that has got to be one of the best slams against lawyers I have ever heard. Well done, Henry Fonda. And that delivery, magnificent. everybody and welcome to the cinema psych podcast the podcast where psychology meets film i as always am your host dr alex swan and in this episode i am so excited we're changing up the the format just a little bit i am going to have two guest hosts today to talk with me about the film 12 angry men yeah yeah, so 12 Angry Men. It's a movie that probably you think was made in the black and white era of film, 1950s. And you'd be right. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the 1957 version of 12 Angry Men. And 40 years later, they made another version. And we are also going to be talking about that version, 1997's made-for-TV movie, 12 Angry Men. It's, um, you know, it was a made-for-TV movie, so we'll... It's a movie still, so we'll still count it. And so in this episode, what we're going to do, these two guest hosts that I have, which who will I will introduce uh, in just a minute, we are going to explore how these two films uh, relate to one another. They're essentially the same viewing experience, um, by virtue of plot and plot beats. And so we'll discuss the, the psychology of those plot beats. And then we'll jump into the differences. What does 40 years do to a film like 12 Angry Men, first uh, in 1957 and then in a much, much different world, 1997? There have been other films made about this uh, American courtroom drama written for uh, the radio and television in 1954 by Reginald Rose. There have been some a few other films. Um, most of them uh, are uh, foreign language films and, again, follow a similar uh, plot and story beat, story elements uh, as the other ones. But I think for... This show and for this audience, just talking about the um, English version, American films uh, works best, in my opinion here. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, now, a little bit of background on the two versions. The 1957 version, of, uh, of which we'll talk about extensively, was written, uh, was a sort of adapted the teleplay, and directed by Sidney Lovett. And um, 
I, I would suppose that that film has received uh, considerable uh, attention just because for how long it's been out. And then it was one of uh, Henry Fonda's who plays the main protagonist, juror number eight. It is sort of one of his strongest, in my opinion. I've seen a few Henry Fonda films. In my opinion, it's one of his strongest performances. It was nominated for um, the big four. Uh, oh, no, sorry. The big three uh, categories, best director, best picture and best writing for adapted screenplay. So it is touted as one of the greats in that sort of gold and silver era of film those the late 1950s the 1997 version like i said um was adapted directly from the same courtroom drama that reginald rose wrote so it's pretty much the same thing maybe a little differences here and there to account for changes over the last 40 years uh but but for the most part, it is the same story. This one was directed by William Friedkin. Now, I didn't say any other names uh, in the cast of the Sidney Lovett 1957 film because I don't know if any listeners would know those names. Um, you could look them up. Fiedler, the voice of the original voice, I should say, of Piglet is juror number two. Uh, but I, I don't know if any other names would like, you know, jump out at you. You'd be like, ah, who's that? Uh, but in the 1997 version, we have names you probably had heard of, have heard of. So we've got George C. Scott, one of his last, um, on-screen performances. Uh, we've got James Gandolfini in one of his earlier performances. This is slightly before, uh, he starts with, uh, the Sopranos, William Peterson, uh, sort of coming off a middling uh, film career uh, and television career from the eighties and the nineties. You know, he he doesn't get his big break until a few years later with Crime Scene Investigation (CSI), so the original Las Vegas version. So that William Peterson, Tony Danza's in it. Tony Danza uh, playing a strong New York character. Uh, Ozzie Davis is in it, uh, Hume Cronin, Courtney B. Vance, which is also amazing, um, Michaelty Williamson, yes, Bubba, that Bubba, Michaelty Williamson, uh, Armin Mueller-Stahl is also in it, and you've seen him as the stoic German character because he is... German and um, he does this very intellectual performance really well for juror number I believe that's four uh, his character Edward James almost is in it he's honestly the uh, ambiguous ethnic uh, character uh, so I don't know and then this film's juror number eight is Jack Lemon in one of his um, later, almost one of his final uh, on-screen performances uh, himself. So, yeah, uh, stacked, stacked cast there, stacked cast. Great films all around, and I'm sure as we go through this conversation, you will find out which one is preferred by all three of us. That before we get into the discussion, both of these films are 
truly great films, at least from my opinion. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, as well as a a pedagogical tool in psychology, the concepts we'll talk about in this episode are extremely clear, extremely clear, useful in a social psych or intro psych class, extremely clear. And uh, with each version, you can explore how times have changed. Um, even if you wanted to go from 57 to 97, as we'll do tonight uh, to in this episode, you can go, OK, what changed in 40 years? Or you can even go, OK, now it's, you know, even past it's been 20 years, 20, 20 plus years, almost 25 years uh, since 1997. So, I mean, there's a wealth of possibility you can do with these films. And, and that's why I've been so keen on doing this episode i i am so hyped for it i hope you will get hyped too so without further ado let's jump straight in my guest hosts today are returning guest hosts dr jordan waggy and jason spiegelman both have been on the show once or twice uh, and i thought their dynamic in the real world would be great to discuss two films about angry men. Jason is one, and Jordan ain't here for them. Welcome back to the show, you two. Yay, thank you for having us. Yay, I am so glad you are back. Um, and knowing both of you in real life, <laughs> real life, isn't this real life? Uh, knowing both of you in real life and um, that dynamic and then as well as our online dynamic. So great. So when I had this idea of, I think it actually maybe it was yours, Jason, uh, credit where credit's due on this one, having a, a bit of a, a uh, dueling daisies, both of you are daisies, um, if on a film that is essentially... Uh, been remade uh, across 40 years, 1957 to 1997. Um, so I thought you would be perfect for this. I really did. And I'll let you all, both of you, remind everyone who you are and what sort of research and teaching that you do so I don't have to do it. So, uh, Jordan, why don't you get us started? Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm Jordan Waggy. Uh, I teach at Avila University in Kansas City, Missouri, mm -hmm. and I teach um, grads and master's level students there. I'm a cognitive psychologist, so I used to teach a lot of like cognition, and actually I was trained in sensation and perception, but we don't offer that class. Um, oh, bummer. And intro psych, but now I know. It's, I work it into everything, so it's fine. That's why I got a tattoo with a visual illusion on it <laughs> so um i teach mostly now i teach research design and analysis classes at the undergrad and grad level and really love it and i've got a lab um and i do research a lot of work in uh, student research methods um like doing replication work and um and then my lab we used we were for a long time studying cognition related to like food and eating and that sort of transitions after realizing how problematic that entire literature is we um, have transitions into doing like more like critical weight studies like trying to like de-bias and debunk 
myths related to like health and body size and stuff like that from a cognitive perspective. That's excellent. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we'll talk more about that undergraduate research collaboration thing at the end. You can plug that stuff, okay? Uh, And Jason? Uh, My name is Jason Spiegelman. I teach at the Community College of Baltimore County in Catonsville, Maryland. Um, Not nearly as impressive a resume as my colleague, Dr. Waggy. Um, I teach uh, exclusively undergraduates right now. Pretty much uh, limited to introduction to psych and abnormal psych, though lately uh, much more focused on intro. Um, I am um, more active uh, as a sort of advocate at various conferences than a researcher, and I have the pleasure of being the chair of teaching for the Eastern Psychological Association and um, serve the Society for the Teaching of Psychology as a liaison to EPA, as well as being on their committee for teacher uh, travel grants for teachers of high school psychology. Um, and in my spare time, I do a little bit of work um, writing supplements and ancillaries that accompany psychology textbooks. A little bit? A little bit. And, and, and then every now and again, I like to see my wife and kids, but that's, that's pretty <laughs> much my story. Well, and, and Jason, you have been on the show a couple of times. We discussed very early in the show's run, we discussed um, Inception. Which was really fun, yeah. And then uh, last year, we talked about a a river running through it. A river runs through it. Um, Fishing. Yep. Something that I don't haven't done since I was a child. So yeah, it was it was it was a great it was a great episode. So listener, go check those out. Jordan, we talked about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, top five movie for me. So (laughs) I was so mad when he told me to watch that movie. I was like, you could pick anything. I really wanted to do What About Bob. Why didn't you tell me that? You didn't tell I don't me know. that. Yeah. I was like, mm. I was slacking on telling you things that I liked. Stay tuned, kids. Dr. Waggy's next appearance will be What About <laughs> I Bob? I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't really mad. It was fine. I like, <laughs> she I, was, was really was, mad. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, trust me. <laughs> okay, so let's pivot to our discussion because I think we are probably going to be at it for a length of a normal episode of this podcast. So we can just jump straight into it. So 12 angry men, the two of you, uh, as I said, Jason is an angry man and, uh, Jordan doesn't want to know any. So we, there are two movies, 1957 black and white version, Sidney Lumet, Henry Fonda, and the 1997 made for TV movie. With a bunch of people that uh, I think everyone who listens to this will recognize two or three. But the Henry Fonda character played instead by Jack Lemmon. So before we jump into the psych concepts and all of the other things that we can use this film to talk about. Why? Let's let's get some broad. uh, Let's get some broad ideas out on the table about why we can talk about this film, why talking about a film that was made in 1957 is as important as a film made in 1997, the time span in between that. So your thoughts on the film in general and why specifically do you think it was remade? Probably more than any other film needs to be remade. It's it's really... I think what, what, what it's depicting in the 
need for a remake is the fact that we maybe haven't come that far. And if we look at the larger issue of race relations in the United States, there is a there's an argument that really has two sides to it. One side is, look how much better things are now than they were then. And then the other side of that argument is, no, nothing's really that much better, and the improvements are really just um, an illusion. And so a really important film like the 1957 version being seen against the backdrop of you know one or two generations later with this idea of, is, are, are things better now? I would imagine that that's probably some of the reason for it, in addition to the changes that they made that I think we're going to get into more throughout the, our discussion. Yeah, I think Jason kind of nails it. There are, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but um, there, I had I had made like a running list of things that were different because I just happened to have the good fortune of like watching the 1957 version to prepare for this podcast like a day before I watched the 1997 version. And so I had a list of things that that were different between the two. And there's nothing really substantial. Like somebody in the newer version says something about somebody having like a big old booty, which is um, not the language that was used in the original one. Um, and then the judge was a woman. And that's sort of one thing that I'll I'll probably come back to when we talk when we talk about like the toxic masculinity aspect and all that stuff. Um but it it sort of I ask myself that same question because I get I get kind of annoyed at movie remakes like, um, and and this one is is a little bit less obvious because there's so little updating between the two, um, but I think I think the message really is like this is timeless right this is, and it doesn't these don't even have to be the arguments that we're having about like the justice system. This is just, this is how people interact and this is how people are in a group. And this is, uh, this is a characteristic of people that will always exist. And I don't talk more about that. But. And really what a statement that is, that this is timeless. We don't want this to be timeless. This is not the kind of interaction that we would want to see 40 years later, a director saying, you know what? We don't really need to make much in the way of changes because Nothing has changed. When I think, I think Jordan's point about remakes is very good. Sometimes it feels like Hollywood has just run out of ideas, so let's just rehash something. The one that comes to mind for me is Total Recall. You know, the Schwarzenegger one versus the Colin Farrell one, and the Colin Farrell one was absolutely dreadful. Um, they changed the entire thing around, and people said, you know, don't want to watch this. Jordan's giving me a look right I, now. I would argue that the Colin Farrell version is fine if it's on mute. If it's on mute, okay. <laughs> but it's a different kind of remake in 12 Angry Men because it is, with a few exceptions, again, that we're going to talk about, it's the same movie. And um, that, I think, really speaks volumes. Um, to speak the language of, of cognitive psychology, there's a real meta message there that says nothing has changed. Yeah, um, and to add on to that point, um, I mentioned at the top of the show that um, – while we're only talking about the English language American versions of this teleplay uh, from the 1950s, other countries have made their foreign language films of it, and they are essentially the same thing, too. So there's a German version, there's a Russian version, there's a British version. I mean, that's also in English, but still, mm -hmm. um, they it's are a all kind of English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
they're all the same thing. So it's it's very striking that even just in other countries and other cultures, there is still this um, deep running thread through it. I think, you know, I mean, I think the point I was trying to make about movie remakes is just that at least I can usually pick out. So this director or, you know, this like there are things that they wanted to update. They wanted to have their own vision on it. But in, in, I believe that the 1997 version, like that is the message that like we can do this exact same thing and it still makes sense. And I personally, like, I think that that is the message in the movie itself that I think was done a little bit better in the first movie. Like how they, they all sort of, they all sort of traips in, they traips out at the end. It's very non, you know, it's a non moment. They'll just all go up. The scene is like, the last scene is just like uh, people just dissipate into the rain. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, all just moments that will continue to look like other moments just like it. I wonder, does the, obviously, if we um, change, make the change that I'm suggesting, it's no longer 12 Angry Men, but if the uh, constituency of the jury begins to include women in potential remakes in the future, does that change the narrative? Well, I can tell you that 12 Angry Men is um, very popular among high school productions. And I would imagine college productions, but I, I've seen um, videos of several high school versions, and quite often they change it to Twelve Angry People, mm-hmm. and they do exactly what you just suggested. Now, okay. um, I'm I'm not going to try to try to assess the impact uh, comparing a high school performance versus a movie, but um, I I think it would be very interesting to see that remake. Um, and what comes to mind is um, as a comparison, George Clooney's um, Ocean's Eleven. Um, which was remade into several se- well, which had several sequels, which were actually quite good, and then they redid it with um, with women. And um, I got about ten minutes into the movie, and I said, "No, no, I, I can't watch this. It's it's just it doesn't work." But if you were to take this movie and sort of gender diversify or sexually diversify the, the jury, then that issue of toxic masculinity that we're going to get to really becomes much more interesting. In does that bleed into the female jurors or not? Or who yeah, is cast as the who is cast as women and who is cast as men, right? And which of the jurors, the the more temperamental ones or the more uh, that that would be interesting just from a director's perspective. Is the director going to put the women in the more docile juror positions versus the more aggressive ones? Yeah, I think you'd have to have a mix mix on that one. But it could it could ultimately be an implicit bias that a director has, right? Put put or, or not so implicit. <laughs> well, implicit to them, but everyone yeah. else see everyone would see through right through that. Yeah, exactly. I I I didn't even yeah. realize that um, school plays were changing it to. I mean, it makes sense from a like staffing perspective. Uh, probably don't have enough men to do it, so twelve change it to twelve angry people because that's who's in the troop. I don't know. That's, that's brilliant. I was even thinking, oh, you can name it 12 Angry People. That's that's exactly what they do. <laughs> All right. So my next job, my next job is going to be a um, high school play director. I, I, I can come up with titles that are gender inclusive. Look at me. 
<laughs> Jordan's face. Go ahead, Jordan. I mean, you, you've done it once, you know. I don't show me. Give me a second title that you can improve, and maybe. But don't like, don't leave your job. <laughs> <laughs> don't quit your day job. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, it takes me hours. I mean, minutes to come up with the titles for these podcasts. It's the hardest part. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so let's jump into the content of the film, obviously. Talk about it as, as a uh, cultural phenomenon twice. Uh, but let's do what we do on the show and pull out the psych hats and... Talk about some concepts that are pretty clear in this film, I think. I, I've used it in the past myself in a social psych class. And uh, I specifically uh, had the class watch it right after we were done talking about persuasion and other forms of social influence. So persuasion is sometimes considered social influence, sometimes it's not. We can talk about it all together, but... We can jump into persuasion first and then hit the other hit the other uh, three compliance, conformity and obedience after that. Uh, so what was your favorite persuasion technique? I think that um, one thing that I really enjoy thinking about in this film is something that many people have written about, but I actually disagree with it. And one of the arguments that people make is that in either episode of the 57 or the 97, People have argued that juror number eight, who is the lone standout, the lone dissenter at the beginning, that he is attempting some probably non-conscious version of the foot in the door technique. That if he can get one person on his side, right, then he is going to be able to continue his argument. And it appears from sort of a cinematic perspective that, you know, once one juror flips, we sort of all know where this is going very early in the movie. And I would argue that that's actually not correct. And the reason for that is the first juror to flip again in both episodes is juror number nine. And after they take the secret vote and they say, you know, juror number eight says, you all take a secret vote. I'll abstain. If you all agree, I'll flip and I'll go with you. And then juror number nine flips and says, no, I'm voting not guilty. In the movie, they have a little bit of back and forth and argue about why he changed his vote. And he says, I'm going to tell you why I changed my vote. And here is where I think foot in the door fails. He doesn't say I changed my vote because I'm now convinced that the guy's not guilty. He didn't change his vote. I didn't. Oh, fine. I know it. Would you like me to tell you why? No, I wouldn't like you to tell me why. Well, I'd like to make it clear anyway, if you don't mind. Do we have to listen to this? The man wants to talk. Thank you. This gentleman has been standing alone against us. Now, he doesn't say the boy is not guilty. He just isn't sure. Well, it's not easy to stand alone against the ridicule of others. So he gambled for support, and I gave it to him. I respect his motives. But the boy in trial is probably guilty, but uh, I want to hear more. Right now, the vote is 10 to 2. I'm talking here. You have no right to leave this room. I don't think that that's foot in the door. And I've, I've seen a lot of analysis of this movie that says that foot in the door is a major persuasion technique or compliance technique that is taking place here. And I don't think that it is. Now, again, whether you consider that compliance or persuasion depends on the textbook you're reading. But that's something that I think if you look a little bit deeper into juror number nine's reason for changing his votes, we have a really different, um, we have a really different sort of concept taking place. That is, uh, that is interesting. I, I, I don't know if I had ever classified as foot in the door myself. 
Um, that never occurred to me whether or not it was because it wasn't right or not up for debate. But and I never I never said, hey, you know, that's a that's a foot in the door technique right there. Also, I probably would not have said that if I was talking about persuasion, because I usually do uh, foot in the door with compliance and I talk about them separately. So that I would agree with you, Jason. It pains me to say, but uh, I would agree <laughs> with you there. Um, because that you're right that I don't think that's foot in the door. I do think though, it is persuasion. I mean, he's appealing to all of their sensibilities. Uh, and it's kind of hard to not think that he's attempting at least some persuasive technique. You know, the whole, uh, you could almost argue that, um, it's a not so subtle reverse psychology re reactance like, hey, you know, you guys do your vote and I'll sit over here. And then juror number nine's like this guy. So it could be it could be anything like that. But I think I think your point is is really good. Bringing it back to the idea of reactance. Um, juror number eight, you know, Lemon or Fonda, several times somebody says to him, why should we believe you? And he says, I'm not asking you to believe me. Why should we think this kid is guilty? I didn't say, or not guilty, excuse me. I didn't say he's not guilty. And he, he takes a really glorious approach. And when they keep asking him, why do you think this? He says, I don't know. I don't know if he did it or not. I don't, and my favorite line, by the way, is I don't know if I believe him or not. But I'm not willing to just vote guilty to get out of here so that, uh, Tony Danza's character can go to the ballgame really quickly. So I think the idea of working in almost a reverse reactance, if I tell you you have to believe it, you're not going to believe it. So he says, I'm going to avoid that approach. I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm just telling you that I don't know. And I think that's that's really brilliant in terms of persuasion, persuasive technique. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, for some of these men, they don't really care about this uh, defendant. Jordan, you have any thoughts on um, persuasion? What's your favorite persuasive technique? My, I like all the all the system two stuff. I, th I don't know. In social psychology, I think it's like the central route of persuasion. Um, and this is totally like my stats and methods mind, right? But as predictable as this is, I really liked the knife because we do tend to think about events as being like ridiculously, like ridiculously improbable. And when, um, when Jack Lemon, I'm just going to not Jack Lemon, Henry, Fonda, I'm just going to refer to Henry Fonda because I like the 57 movie more. Um, when, he, when he pulls that knife out and is like, it's really not that coincidental. Um, that was a good moment, but my absolute favorite, um, was when he tested the speed that the old man would walk. Um, no, not the knife, the, the speed that the old man would walk down the hall because he didn't know, right? He didn't know what the time on the clock would be. Time perception is terrible. Every, this is like the cognitive psychologist in me, right? It's like everybody thinks they have good time perception, but nobody like, like really wraps their head around. Just like everybody thinks they have good memory. Everybody thinks they have good whatever. And we don't. And and so he, he gets the information, like he is being a scientist right there. He is like, let's get the information we need and reconstruct it. 
and like see and see what just the data says about how how fast a fast man dragging his foot um, would get from the bed to the hallway and um, into the front door. Uh, and I thought that was really brilliant. That was, um, that that's, was like a reminder to me of like what I try to do every day of like, I don't have, I don't have, I don't know what the outcome to this will be, but let's test it. What are you doing? I want to set this up, see how long it took him. You want to set it up? Why didn't the kid's lawyer bring it up if it's so important? Maybe he just didn't think of it. What do you mean he didn't think of it? What do you think, that guy's an idiot or something? It's an obvious thing, Did man. you think of it? Look, smart guy, it don't matter whether I thought of it or not. All right, let's calm it down. He didn't bring it up because he thought it was going to hurt his case. Now, what do you think about that? Maybe right. he didn't bring it up because it would seem as if he was badgering and pestering a helpless old man, which does not sit well with the jury. Lawyers try to avoid that sort of thing if they can. What kind of bum is it then? That's exactly what I've been asking. Now, let's say this is the old man's bed. First, I'm going to pace off 12 feet. That's the length of the bedroom. You're crazy. You can't recreate a thing like that. Okay, you want to do me a favor? Could you hand me that chair? Put it right here. This is the bedroom door. That hallway was, what, it was 43 feet. Well, I'll pace over to that wall and then back around this way again. This is absolutely insane. What's the idea of him wasting everybody's time with this? Well, look, it's only going to take 15 seconds, according to you. If you would, thank you very much. This is the doorway out into the hall and the stairway going down. It was chain locked according to testimony. Now, has anybody here got a second hand on their watch? I have. All right. Well, you just stamp your foot when you want me to go. That'll be the body falling. All right. Time me from then. <laughs> anybody for charades? I have never seen anything like this. All right. Before. I'm ready. Come on here. Come on, would you? I'm waiting for the second hand to reach six though. <laughs> okay. Go. Oh, come on, step it up. He walked twice as fast as that. It's too we slow. Fast he walked. He didn't walk any feet. He's going to get this kid stuff yeah, this old man No, that's too slow. That's the way you you want me to walk faster? All right, I'll walk faster. That's the speed you want. I'll eat the five, you don't make it. This is a trial for murder. Time. Exactly forty two seconds. Forty two seconds? Forty two seconds. I, I, I you that's my favorite scene too. Uh, because the exact reason, and as you were saying that, Jason was doing his, you know, we were both like, yeah, uh, because it, it really is the scientist scene. Um, for, and, and I like to build up too, as you were saying with the knife, because it was almost like, um, the probably, you know, science is probabilistic. Life is probabilistic. Things can are, can be rare, but then you know most things are probably not rare and then he just he goes and does uh he goes and does an experiment in the damn jury room it's brilliant yeah um, it was brilliant and you know I, like when that scene happened i paused it i did this in the 57 version not 97 i paused it and i timed it too 
to see if it was 42 seconds or however long. I think it was like 41 seconds. I'm not sure. But um, to see if it was like the same amount of time. Was it 42 seconds? Yeah, I think it was something like 43. Uh, 42 would have been a good number. <laughs> yeah, 42 would have been a good number. Uh, but yeah, I think it was 43 seconds. And uh, journal number two is the one who says it. 43 seconds. To be exact. That was the, and that was the, like, that was the thought that I had right after it ended was like, I was trying to guess what they would say um, for how long it would take. And I'm like, that must have been like at least like 28 seconds. Yeah. And I was way off. And like, I already know where this is going. Right. So I, just watching it and watching it unfold without having like, and, the, and like, I, I think it was also, I'm like kind of rambling on about this. I'm sorry, but like, I think it was also really interesting because I think time perception is really cool in this idea. Like I know David Eagleman has done some stuff in this area and hasn't really like, I don't think folks have like found much, but this idea that like time sort of might like slow down when you are going through something that's like really, um, Bad. Like a, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for finding the word bad. <laughs> oh, Doctor <laughs> Exactly. You know, another scene that I thought was um, absolutely fantastic, um, and I was sort of expecting Jordan that you were going to go to the knife scene um, when um, I'll use the ninety-seven version when uh, Jack Lemon is antagonizing Jordan number three. And um, he gets him to the point where he pisses him off so much that juror number three starts screaming, let me at him. Who do you think you are? I'll kill him. I say, I'll kill him. And then he just looks at him with this beautiful, sweet smile. And he says, now you don't really mean you're going to kill me, do you? And the, the look on juror number three's face of just, oh, my goodness, I have just been had is it's, it's beautiful. I didn't and like that. I, didn't I like loved that. it. Why I didn't you like it? I didn't like it because... Um, it felt really it felt really out of character for that juror like that juror it felt petty which and juror it, number 8 or number 3 number, number 8 henry fonda okay okay i don't know their numbers um juror eight. Jur, yeah juror 8 sorry i'll keep calling juror um it it felt like it was it was it was petty like it wasn't and and that again when we talk about toxic masculinity but like there were a couple flashes where juror 8 was he like rose into that like toxic masculinity like sort of and that i know he i know the point he was trying to make but like i don't like the idea of making a point at somebody else's expense right um if possible i don't know it's just it felt like it was really in contrast to like that character's whole thing uh i saw it I saw it a very different way. Uh, the way that I see it is he recognizes that juror number three is a very boisterous, mouthy, um, gotta make, gotta beat my son into being a man kind of guy, right? And even says, I, I, I saw my kid run away from a fight one time and I said, I'm gonna make a man out of you or I'm gonna bust you in half trying. And I think he recognizes that this guy is not gonna be talked out of his position. He has to be led out of his position. Um, so I, I didn't see it as rising into the toxic masculinity. I saw it as a, a, almost um, verbal Tai Chi, so to speak. He says, I'm going to demonstrate to you that you can say I'm going to kill you and not mean it because juror number three specifically said, I don't think anybody would say that who didn't mean it. And then he, he baits him, I agree, into 
doing yeah. exactly that. So I, I, I took I had a different take on that particular scene. I, I love that scene myself. I, that um, makes sense. I guess I, I guess uh, really quick, Alex. I'm so sorry. I'm like this is your podcast, so I'm not letting you talk. But maybe what's landing wrong about it is not the fact that it happened, but like you saying that that you liked that scene, like you got pleasure out of that guy getting owned. And I don't know. That just lands wrong on me. That's like I want to have empathy for all of these people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I get it. The fair points both. I think I read it slightly differently than both of you, maybe in the middle. Um, I (laughs) I read it as a persuasive technique because he's essentially mirroring um, many of the people that he's talking to. Uh, And I think I think here's a performance difference between um, the two versions. I think Jack Lemon puts a little bit too much smug on, mainly because we know Jack Lemon as being a funny guy. And so when he gets a rise out of somebody, we see him as playing a joke. Um, so I think that's a Jack Lemon thing. I think it lands so much better and Henry Fonda delivers it so much better in the 1957 version, even if it seems a little out of character. I will agree uh, with your point there. But, it, but again, I also think that maybe it seeming out of character is part of this persuasive technique. Not that I need to give juror number eight all the omniscience of the the quality, but he does stick his neck out there several times. And it seems as though he does have a bit of a plan, even if he says, you know, I don't really know, but shouldn't we at least talk about it? I think that's fine. A fine plan. Uh, we, we should just keep talking about it. So, it's it's almost persuasive, as Jason was saying, um, is sort of to mirror his own uh, toxic masculinity, his own macho ness um, right back in him and 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 express it as this smugness like, hey, look what I made you do. Um, and then he does it in a similar way to the journal number nine, the old man. He essentially tries to stop the old man from getting too riled up to not be an angry man, essentially. It's like, don't be angry. You're an old man. Um, is part part of his mirroring each of these jurors and talking directly to them. And he does this so, so well in perhaps the best exchange in the entire movie, not monologue or anything like that. The the experiment scene is my favorite scene, but the best exchange between two two characters is the persuasion is the logic persuasion that um and you know the memory mess up with Jernber what four uh played by Armin movie. Armin Mueller Stahl in the ninety seven version, and I couldn't tell you who played him in in the uh, uh in nineteen fifty seven version. Oh man. A man, yeah. Uh, and uh, he just hits him right where he needs to because he's mirroring all of these guys. So that's that's my take on it. Yeah, when juror number eight, uh, going back to what you said a moment ago, when juror number eight is speaking to the old man, juror number nine, and he's trying to stop him from arguing with juror number 10, at least in the 97 version, I thought an absolutely beautiful line from Jack Lemmon's character. I don't remember the exact words, but he says, basically, don't bother. He can't hear you. Right. Not he's not going to listen, but he can't hear you. 
and just recognize that you're you're speaking to a brick wall here. Don't waste your breath. Um, I do agree. Going back, however, that the '97 version, Jack Lemmon in in the antagonizing of juror number three, I, I do agree with Jordan that it was overdone by Lemon. He goes too far with the anger when he says, "You're a you're sadistic. You're a sadist. I pity you." And that is, I think, a little bit out of character for the Henry Fonda version, where he's just politely baiting the guy into his own little temper tantrum. Um, so I, I, I do concede that point that Lemon overacted that in, in kind of a, a direction that perhaps is not fitting for juror number eight. Later on, however, we see the extraordinary empathy between juror number eight and juror number three as eight is trying to um, talk juror number three down from seeing his own son in this defendant. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, this is not your boy. And later, you know, putting his jacket over his shoulders I think the message there is you and I have just gone 12 rounds, but we're still going to shake hands and hug like boxers at the end of the match. Um, I, I thought that was that was very interesting, uh, sort of in contrast to trying to bait him earlier in the deliberation. Yeah, uh, I think juror number eight represents uh, a lot of things that we say we do for other people, but a lot of times don't do. We just say we do, which is terrible uh okay so a few other social influence points conformity this one should be easy we have a table that looks exactly like the table used in the ash line studies conformity voting not are guilty i was gonna say not guilty voting guilty uh mr foreman can you do a vote? I felt bad for the four men. Do a vote. Yeah. Do a vote. Yeah. Do a vote. And then they always wanted to do them in different ways, you know, to see where everybody was. I haven't, you know, I haven't thought too much about social psychology concepts in relation to this movie, which it, it seems obvious that I should have. But, um, you know, the the juror number seven is what sticks out to me in terms of conformity of like, I actually, I pulled up a chart on my computer of, of the different jurors so I could call them by the right numbers. Nice. But juror number seven is the one with the baseball tickets and the 1997 version played by Tony Danza, which is what I watched the entire time the 1997 version was on. Um, so I was like texting Alex messages about Tony Danza and a V-neck. Like, Thank you for thank you for picking this movie. Um, but juror number seven, you know, sort of just assumed. I think in the beginning, sort of just assumed everybody was guilty. He wanted to get out of there, whatever. I, I kind of think at the end he flipped, not because he thought the guy wasn't guilty, and that obviously what was what was going on with it was a juror number juror number ten too. Juror number ten was like, "I'll just vote however you guys are voting." Mm -hmm. um, he was doing it because he was horrible and racist but um but juror number seven i think just wanted to like get out of there and i sort of liked the message that like conformity is fine when it's like a guilty versus not guilty like that conformity is bad when you're sending somebody away but it's if you're going to conform to an opinion like the bur like the burden of proof is on you know, the prosecutor, I'm like getting sort of lost in this. I don't know how I'm, I don't know how I'm trying to say this. Like, please remove all of this. But 
if we look at juror number seven, and I, I suppose I should have paid attention to this, um, remind me, please, if, if I'm remembering correctly, he does not change his vote until after the rain starts. Correct. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And so it seems to me that his willingness to stay in the room and talk it through and be more of a critical thinker, if, if we can give him credit for getting to that place, really does not occur until those baseball tickets are no longer burning a hole in his pocket. And up until then, he just wants to resolve it. He keeps saying, come on, guys, look at the time. And then one of the jurors even says when the rain comes down, guess you're not going to get to your game tonight. I think that's the moment at which juror number seven says, well, I have nothing else to do. I might as well start giving this my attention. Well, I, I don't know about the timing on this one either. I think it kind of goes together in my mind. But even after the rain starts, um, he's like, what are we doing this for anyways? I don't want to do this anymore. You know, and okay, it's not Rocky, Alex. Okay, okay whatever. I thought that was really good, Alex. Oh, uh, thank Stop you. It. Uh, Stop it. You know, he, he gets all pouty <laughs> because those tickets are no longer burning a hole in his pocket. I think we have to take that in consideration because I think. I'm pretty sure it's after this that juror number um, 11, played by Edward James Olmos, uh, Captain Adama mm -hmm. um, from Battlestar Galactica. Beats, oh, yeah. Beats mm -hmm. Bears, Battlestar Galactica. Um, he has to get yelled at. You know, this is what I had put down in in our notes doc about, you know, appealing to central root processing of persuasion. This is a man's life. You don't get to just say not guilty. No, I'm a little sick of this whole thing already. You know, I mean, all this yapping is getting us nowhere. So I'm going to break it up here. I'm changing my vote to not guilty. You're what? You heard me. I, uh, I've had enough. You've had enough. That's no answer. Hey, listen, you. You, you. you just worry about yourself. He's right. That is not an answer. What kind of a man are you? You have been sitting here voting guilty with everyone else because there are a couple of baseball tickets burning a hole in your pocket, and now you say you're going to change your vote because you've had enough with all the talking? Uh, listen, buddy, I... I you cannot do this. You cannot play like this with a man's life. What is wrong with you? It is a terrible and ugly thing to do. Do you not care? Wait a minute. Now, you can't talk like that to I me. I can't talk like that to you. Now, if you want to vote not guilty, then do it because you are convinced that the man is not guilty, not because you've had enough. If you want to vote guilty, then vote that way. Or don't you have the guts to do what you think is right? Hey, now listen, buddy. You just Guilty or not guilty? I told you, not guilty. Why? God damn you, I don't have to tell you anything. Yes, you do. Say it. Why? I don't think he's guilty. So I, I think I think that is where he that he got yelled at. He got put in his place. And of course, that's how conformity works, doesn't it? We get yelled at when we don't do the conformity. And sometimes that yelling at is very quiet, uh, understated exclusion if you don't do the conformity. Well, from sort of a, a, I guess, a crossover of cognitive and social psych, if you look at juror number seven, what I see, and, and I think Tony Danza did act it beautifully, I think we see belief, uh, the concept of belief perseverance happening here. And early on, I think he's committed to the idea that he believes that the guy, the, the defendant is guilty. And I think, actually, much earlier than he flips his vote, 
we should believe that the character has changed his mind. Uh, Tony Danza's character, juror number seven. But at that point, belief perseverance is taking place, and he doesn't want to give it up. He's been so dug in. And at one point, I think he even says something like, you, you could talk for a year and I wouldn't change my mind. But now he's changed his mind and he doesn't want to admit it. He doesn't want to admit it to the others. He doesn't want to admit to himself that he was wrong. And when he says, I'm going to vote guilty, well, because I think he's not guilty, and then he gets yelled at, that's what bucks him out of that sort of, I can't admit that I've changed my mind. And, you know, we see this all the time in, in society around us where people dig in on one thing. They're presented with evidence that they're wrong. They know they're wrong, but they're going to maintain that party line answer anyway, right up until the moment when someone says, you really sound like an idiot for continuing to say it right now. So I would suspect that we're meant to believe that he's really changed his mind much earlier than he's willing to admit. Okay. I, we don't know what's in the minds of these characters, but you know that I'm fairly persuasive, Jason, fairly persuasive. Uh, the the other uh, one that I wanted to mention here, because we kind of did foot in the door with uh, compliance with foot in the door, uh, was obedience. And then we can come back to the belief perseverance thing. Uh, obedience. Um, many times the jurors are told to shut up. Shut up. And um, I, that's really the biggest form of obedience. I mean, the, I guess the judge says, go do this thing. You can't leave until you're done. That's my favorite. They lock the door. They lock the door. Right. Oh, man. I mean, I know that's real. It's a real thing, but whew, that's rough. It's icky. Yeah, and it's Have also icky you- in the room. And, of course, research does tell us that when you get hot, you get angry. And so, of course, these men were angry. Does Have research tell us ever- that? Uh, research does, does tell us that. Does it? Have- have either of you actually served on a jury? No. Oh, God, no. Okay, I have. I have. Years ago, I actually got placed on a jury, did the best I could to get out of it, I, I, I readily admit. But I'll tell you, they didn't lock the door. Um, you did have a button to push if you wanted the attention of the officer who was there for you. But um, Bailiff. That's, well, in our particular case, it wasn't bailiff. But in any case, um, the idea of locking the door, I, I don't know if that's regularly practiced or if that was just sort of a cinematic ploy to increase the tension in the room. Well, yeah, the air conditioner doesn't work. Well, it does if you turn on the damn switch. That's true. I like yes. the, the choice of that one was very awkward. This is one of the things that would have been different if it were 12 angry people. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown, and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening 
and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. So, Jason, you mentioned um, you'd mentioned belief perseverance and and a right. sister to belief perseverance, uh, at least the bias that fuels belief perseverance is confirmation bias. And there's a lot of it in this movie. Jordan, as the cognitive psychologist, you get first crack at this one. Yes. Do we need to define confirmation bias? Sure, go for it. So it's it's what happens when you and I like I mean, I there are two parts to it, both equally important. But uh, when you pay attention to information or seek information that confirms your beliefs and you ignore information that just confirms your beliefs. And it is absolutely all over the place in this movie. I mean, even think back to like when the guy um, is saying like he wouldn't have said I'll kill you unless he's he, like he. He, it's not occurring to him all of the times people say, I'll kill you. Like, it's just not registering with him. That's not information that he's attending to. Um, and it was, it was really, it was really neat to watch scenarios where this plays out just like all over the place. Yeah. It's a really good confirmation, confirmation bias film. If you just want to watch two hours of confirmation bias flying across the screen, Jason. Mm -hmm. Another great example of, of sort of breaking through that confirmation bias uh, is when we have the interplay between Juror 8 and Juror 10, and Juror 10, who I, I think we should spend some time talking about the extraordinary racism of Michael T. Williamson's character in, in, in the new one. But we'll come back to that. When Juror number 8 says to Juror number 10, let me ask you a question. After Juror number 10 has gone on this extraordinary racist rant about those people, and I wouldn't trust them, and they ain't worth a plum nickel. And then he says, you don't believe him, the boy, the, the defendant, why do you believe her, the witness, who was also Latinx, isn't she one of them too? And that that just that's extraordinary in terms of, if you want to talk about confirmation bias, juror number 10 can't see it. He's completely ignoring what is right in front of him because it does not fit into his heuristic of Latinx individuals. Yeah, and obviously that, these, these, racist, ignorant, uh, as well as several ageist comments made by the younger fellows to the um, to the older gentlemen's gentlemen's in the group. Um, th this is a a, you know, a really rough, specific form of confirmation bias, right? Because we add prejudice into the mix here, um, which is negative in most cases negative prejudice towards towards uh groups of people and so you know we have prejudicial confirmation bias and so all you have to do is look at the um color or nature of that person and that tells you everything you need to know so you already have the knowledge you already have the stereotype you don't actually need to go um, seeking out information to confirm your beliefs. It's already there for you. Uh, that's why prejudicial bias, uh, confirmation bias is so difficult to deal with. And there's other examples as well. I mean, how many times in the movie did juror number three said, that's it, that's all you need to know, you can throw this other stuff away. And then when that point gets blasted out of the water, he all of a sudden dismisses that and then he moves on to another point. And when he's challenged on that, and another juror says, but didn't you just say the other point was really important? And he completely dismisses it. There's no response whatsoever. So it just happens over and over and over yeah. again 
in the movie. And to me, that that was belief perseverance because the the reasoning kept moving, and but his belief stayed the same. So even when his reasoning didn't, it wasn't there. He did not want to give that up, so he would find another reason. And when he couldn't find another reason, he just completely lost it. Yeah, and and that's when he was inserting his son into that role. Um, and he wanted to, you know, break his son out of that role. So my, my uh, an interesting uh, form of confirmation bias that I think uh, acts against Mike Kelty Williams, uh, juror Bye-bye. number 10, uh, as 57 version, again, a name that you probably don't know. Although Ed Bagley. What? Was it Ed, Ed Bagley? It was Ed, Ed Bagley. Bagley. <laughs> Is that Begley Senior? Ed Begley yeah. Senior. Okay, yeah, that's At right. At the time, just Ed Begley. Yeah, right, right exactly. <laughs> he uh, not obviously uh, a black man like Michael T. Williams, but they both play into the um, prejudicial attitudes at the time. It's very. It, there are there is some debate in the 1957 version whether or not the defendant is um, Hispanic or um italian uh so i don't know if you think about what it is ed begley's is quite different to mike kelty williams black juror number 10 um but going back to what i think is a really good example of confirmation bias in in sort of the goal that I have for my Greek courses course on confirm uh, on on cognitive biases is to like know well now that you know what it is, how can you work to reduce it if it's this you know if it's a negative one and of course confirmation bias is a negative one, but journal number five, journal number five. I'm I was tracing the table. Um, in the '97 version, is played by another black man. Uh, who is from the same neighborhoods as the defendant. And he initially votes guilty along with the rest of the group, but he is one of the um, earlier votes to switch to not guilty. And I think the the moment for him where he switches his, his vote is the uh, discussions of juror number three, a white man in both uh, films, and uh, juror number 10, white in 57, black in 97, their um, comments about those people in that neighborhood is his turning point because he's like, well, wait a minute, they could be talking about me. And how would I want to be, how would I feel in that situation and that sort of reflection is really one of the only ways you can prevent uh, confirmation bias and specifically prejudicial confirmation bias from just like grabbing you and not letting go is that is that moment of reflection like wait a minute i shouldn't buy into that because that could be me do you still smell the garbage on me is a really powerful line you see me the way you see him, the defendant, and and then he's holding up a mirror in front of him to say, I, I don't I don't want to do things that way. I don't want to think in those terms. It's also just sort of wonderful for me when I watch the 1957 version. Ja- uh, juror number five is played by 
Klugman, Jack Klugman. And then just thinking about him in such a different role in The Odd Couple, is, is <laughs> it's difficult to see him playing this role versus that role that he iconicized so much later. As a, I was going to preface this by saying as a white woman, which is just like how I should start every conversation. But I do not, I didn't like the way they updated. I didn't like the updated race. I, I feel like the point of that was to drive home that like everybody can be racist. But the, but I just, I feel like that like abs- might like absolve white people from like the incredible amounts of racism. Jordan, I'm I'm not clear as to sort of what what your point is or what point you're making with regard to um, having a black man demonstrate the racism of juror number 10 in the updated version versus um, how white people perceive or express their own racism. Could you clarify that for me? Cause I'm not sure where we're going with that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I think the reason it, it sort of stuck out to me was that like sometimes when, you know, folks are being fragile or defensive about racism, like, um, like white, you know, white fragility people are you know, defensive about the fact that they have engaged in racist behaviors and participate in racist systems. Um, there can be like a type of deflection that people do that involves like, well, like, look, like there's racism within these underrepresented groups as well. And, um, and there's so much, and there's just, there's, so much from the white community that it's like i just i think it was like a missed opportunity or it's it's it can it reads to me as a deflection i guess just because i'm i I, like i think i'm in these spaces so much where you know white people are unpacking their own racism um our own racism i am one um that it 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 just it landed wrong which i'm gonna just keep saying landed wrong because it's a great phrase okay so I think I see where you're going. So a concern would be that for a, a, a white person watching this demonstration of one person of color demonstrating this sort of prejudicial racism toward another person of color, then is the concern that white people would say, well, then see that they do it too. So why are you always coming after me? What's the problem if I do it? Because it's happening in, in between those two groups as well. Is that is that where we're going? Yeah, I guess, or because the racism was so explicit, like somebody could watch that and think, like, uh, you know, I, like I, I believe he was a member of the Nation of Islam, and so people could say, like, oh my god, like that's a racist group, like they're very racist, and it, and it just, it, it feels like it will it might allow people to deflect some of their own racism that might be like even more implicit, um, because they're like, oh my god, like, I would never do anything like that like i'm such a good good white non-racist person um so yeah does that make sense yeah it does that's interesting i hadn't thought about juror number 10 in those terms yeah and and honestly jordan you have changed my opinion on this in just the time that we've been talking about it and i i mean before before that i thought it was a a great change to well because Michael T. Williams is a good actor, but also um I viewed it as just a uh way to show that other communities were also giving the brunt of their ire toward um Latinx uh members, both Latinx just Latin Americans in general, but also um Latino and Latina Americans. 
So I thought that was good, but now that you've explained it like you did, I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? She's probably she's right. Um, it's just because- how it's how it it's how it landed with me. Yeah, I don't know, and you know, but but it's, it's like- very persuasive argument because I think um, even though it does exist, having a white director use it in this way to make a conscious choice to change the race didn't have to change the race in any of them. It could have been a uh, twelve white jurors again in 1990s New York. I mean, that's not that far out of the realm of ordinary for the 90s. So he didn't have to change it, but he did. And and I'm wondering if that now is is a biased change. So the other thing that bothered me about Juror 10 was one of the things, and again, I lost this set of notes that I had where I documented like all the differences between 57 and 97. But he was updated, like his language was updated and it was updated to be more consistent with like, um, like black vernacular. Um, like I believe he's a character who said like something about somebody with a big old boonie that wasn't in the original one. And there were some changed lines. Like most of the characters line for line were exactly the same between the two versions. But not only are you making this character black and a member of the nation of islam but you're also giving him this like highly stigmatized set of when he he could have said the exact same stuff as juror number 10 did in the original yeah i don't think there was anything in that that identified juror 10 as white like he could have kept the exact same language but and it it just it felt a little stigmatizing i was a kid i used to call my father sir that's right Sir, you ever hear a kid call his father that anymore? Fathers don't seem to think it's important anymore. You got any kids? Three. I got one. It's 22 years old. When he was nine years old, he ran away from a fight. I saw it. I was so embarrassed, I almost threw up. I said, I'm going to make a man out of you if I have to break you in two trying. Well, I made a man out of him. When he was 16, we had a fight. Hit me in the jaw, a big kid. I haven't seen him for two years. Kids. Work your heart out. So Jordan, to close us out on on one of the maybe larger subjects that I didn't really think about when I first watched this movie, maybe uh, somewhat, but not in the at the same depth that you did, and I, I thank you for that because it does add another teaching component to uh, these films, whether you show one, the other, or both, and ask for comparisons. Uh, I think you can talk about toxic masculinity in both cases and really couch them in even the the timelessness of toxic masculinity as we define it today, but also the variations on the theme in 1957 versus 1997. So why don't you get get us started in this discussion? Yes, I'm not like a toxic masculinity expert, except in the sense that like I've lived as a woman my entire life. And so they give me perspective on identifying it. And I, and I believe like 
toxic masculinity is something that can be very like that can be demonstrated by women, right? Like when we talk about like hyper masculine traits or masculine traits that are that are toxic, <clears throat> and there are some more traditionally masculine traits that aren't, like um, you know being very proud of your work or being very like proud of how you do at sports or, or, you know, um, the, the, the like quest for dominance over others, um, is, is something that's something that, you know, women can absolutely portray. Um, and if you don't believe me, come and play cards with me. (laughs) Are you, um, very competitive at cards yeah like all of them like even war i'm like my random card was higher than yours eat it and it's just it's so does that also mean sore loser sore loser um terrible winner sort of defensive Uh um stuff you know the stuff that i pulled out in um so it's anything related to dominance. So like, at least in, in somebody who does work in the area of toxic masculinity, you might listen to this and be like, oh my God, this sounded at all. In which case, please email me and we'll have to talk. But things like insults, there were a lot of insults. Um, there was a lot of like violence and physical intimidation in both of these. Um, there was a lot of like men using their bodies a lot to communicate negative things to other people. So whether it was like sort of like standing tall or it was, you know, I think about Juror 10 sitting in the back with his back turned and his leg over his, you know, his chair, being isolated physically from the rest. Um, interruptions. There was a, there was so much interrupting in this movie. And I can't, I don't, I can't, I can't ugh, it makes me so anxious to watch interruptions. Um, yeah. And just sort of like the, the character of eight I mean, I think this might be why I like the 57 version more because I do think Jack London portrayed as like going a little bit over the edge in some of these. Sometimes. Eight was like the anti-toxic male. Like he wasn't defensive. He wasn't riled. He didn't insult people. He had no problem calling out bad behavior when he saw it, like when the people were playing tic-tac-toe and he was like, pay attention. But 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 aside from that, I mean, at the end, like he had nothing to prove at the end. He had nobody convinced, but he had this very empathetic orientation toward juror three. Um, and and that you know that was that was really nice to see. Um, yeah. So. I think there are a lot of more than anything else. I think there are a lot of like examples here of how people use, you know, sort of these, these toxic sorts of traits to like try to achieve. It it looks to me, the, the short story, the play, whatever reads like, a group of men trying to achieve dominance over over each other and um, sort of like masquerading as reasoning and eight isn't buying into it. Jason, thoughts on toxic masculinity in the film? Films? I think Jordan's points are perfectly accurate. And uh, one 
additional sort of example, maybe a little bit more subtle in the area of toxic masculinity, the constant invalidation of the other jurors. Uh, and this this comes a lot from juror number 10 as well. We spent a lot of time talking about juror 10, but he's an interesting character. Um, when he would say something and it would rile up somebody else and they would start to get irritated and then he would immediately invalidate their irritations. Like, what, what you getting so hot about, man? Oh, now you angry. Well, you just said something totally schmucky to this guy. It's perfectly reasonable for him to get angry. So another means of asserting dominance is to say, why are you letting your emotions get away with you? I'm not angry. Well, you certainly sounded angry. So sort of another very subtle way of sort of controlling the room, I think, is something that happens a lot, um, not just with that character, but I think frequently with that character. Um, one of the characters who, to me, does not buy into the toxic masculinity, unless I'm misseeing him, is juror number six uh, in the 97 version. Um, um, Gandolfini. Um, and at one point, I know you, you want me to say Gandalf. Um, at one point when number 10 is speaking disrespectfully, I think it's 10 was speaking disrespectfully. No, sorry. Start again. When number three is being nasty to number nine, right? The, the oldest man in the room. And then number six turns around and looks at him and says, why are you talking to him like that? Anybody who talks to an old woman like that ought to get punched in the face. So he looks at number nine and says, you say what you got to say and no one's going to interrupt you. Now, is the whole you ought to be punched in the face thing toxic masculinity, I suppose. But in the 1957 version, the wording is different. In 57, juror number six says, and if you speak to him like that, I'm going to lay you out. or I'm going to knock you down. He threatens him. Whereas in the updated version, he says, somebody who speaks like that ought to be smacked around a little bit. And the message is probably the same, but the delivery is quite a bit different. I found number six to be um, sort of not buying into that same kind of thing. And at one point, somebody says, you know, supposing this happens, and he says, well, I don't do a lot of supposing. I let my boss do my supposing for me. Number six is playing a really sort of humble guy who says, I'm just trying to figure out what's what here. I agree. Does juror number nine have any toxic mascul masculinity traits? The oldest man. Juror number nine, he's the one who talks about the fact that as the oldest man in the room, he relates most to the witness who was an older man who was wearing mended clothing with, with a hole in it. And he talks about how this person has been insignificant his whole life. And now he has the opportunity to be important. And maybe he would convince himself that he saw something that he didn't see because he wants to be heard. This idea of he's not lying, but Maybe he wants to convince himself that, that this took place. I don't see that kind of masculinity in, in this guy. The guy who would say, I'm willing to change my vote just to support somebody who was willing to stand on his own. Um, I don't know. Jordan, what do you think? Yeah, I that that vote change. And I have like a really clear memory of watching this when I was in high school. Like also thinking that that vote change was like annoying. Was it feels like a? I don't like the vote change. It's like if you're gonna change your vote, do it because he's saying something that makes sense, not because it. I don't know if it's toxic masculinity. I don't know. I don't know if that qualifies or whatever. But this idea of like it's kind of a dick move, yeah. Admiring somebody's personality and so changing this really important thing that you're doing because. 
because of somebody's personality just felt very um trivial and yeah but without it we don't have the rest of the movie so that's fine but somebody had to write the play well yes like why did why was it written that way and the fact that it's about that that one key vote change is about juror eight's personality is i don't know it's just kind of frustrating it feels like it feels like we're already led around so much by personalities. And this is something that, that bothers me a lot about the field that I'm in of psychology of like, there are just these big personalities that attract so much attention and so much like reverence. And, um, is it any more disturbing? And this is a real question. It's not a rhetorical question. Is it any more disturbing than, um, juror number 10, and at one point, for a brief moment, juror number seven changing their votes just because they they don't want to bother with this anymore. Juror ten says, "Whatever you all want, I'll change just to be part of the group." Or juror seven says, um, "Very much the same thing with a different kind of tone." Do, do you do you have the same reaction to those changes that are not because, at least for a moment, they believe differently, but they just want to get it over with? Because what I hear you saying is, if you want to change your vote, change it because you've been convinced. Sort of like yeah. juror number eleven says to juror number seven. But um, and you're saying don't change it because of personality. Change it because you've changed your mind. If that's why you want to change. First it. of all, I am really glad I have this chart here with all the jurors that I downloaded online because I would not understand a thing you're saying without it. Um, can you? Can this be in the supplemental materials for sure. the listeners well, of like a list of and pictures of? <laughs> I don't um, know about list and pictures, but he, yeah. Well, you can Google this. You can Google list of jurors or 12 Angry Men description of jurors, and you can find the stuff so this makes sense. For 97 is when Edward James almost yells at Tony Danza, says, if you're going to change what we talked about before, change for a reason. I feel like you're sort of saying the same thing about juror number nine, who was the first one to flip, saying don't change because you admire number eight, change because you actually changed your verdict. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he had just, he had heard nothing. He had heard nothing besides, like, at least for the jurors number, hang on, let me go down on my key. Jurors number seven and 10, they had been sitting there listening to this, like, accumulate. They, they saw the knife scene. They saw, like, I forget when each of them flipped. That would be a nice chart to have. But, this guy had absolutely nothing except he's this guy and I admire him. So I'm going to do, I'm going to support him. And that's just annoying. It just annoys me. Okay. I can, I, I co-sign on, on it not being toxic masculinity uh, because it probably isn't. But uh, as I called out a, a little bit, uh, he's kind of a dick move to, yeah juror eight's ultimate point which is maybe we should talk about it he's kind of like yeah everyone i think we should talk about it that's a great idea me so how when he goes on about the old man in the trial and he's like he just he wants to be relevant he wants to be seen blah blah blah. maybe what juror number eight nine was doing was like now that he sees somebody else is making the not guilty argument He's like, this can keep me in this room where people can like pay attention to me and I can have contact with people. And it has so a parallel 
a parallel process thing happening. He's talking about the old witness wanting to be important. Well, at this moment, while he's holding forth, he gets to be important. Yeah, it could be um, because he is the only other than juror number eight to be named at the end of the thing. They had that little exchange. My name's McCurdle. What's yours? McCurdle. Nobody's named McCurdle. <laughs> what is but, McCurdle. But more importantly, Alex, what are these accents that you're? My name's McCurdle. He's it's. My name's McCardle. Well, so long. So So I think the final question for both of you is, which version did you like better? I think I'm pretty solid in the 57 version. And I I didn't want to like the 57. Because the cast, this all-star cast in both of them, I'm sure. I'm just more familiar with the people who are in the 1997 version. Um... It just, I think, for me, comes across as a little bit more authentic. Um, and maybe, maybe it's because maybe like if there's no control group here, like maybe if I had watched the '97 version first in my most recent viewing of this, I would have picked the '97 version. But this could be confirmation bias. Um, I think it all comes down to like the subtle way that Henry Fonda played Juror 8 compared to Juror Jack Lemon. <laughs> like, Juror Jack. <laughs> there were things that I liked about the updated version. Um, there, there's, there's something, there, the opening and the closing I liked a lot more in the 57 version. So um, the opening in the 57 version, there's this judge, the that he like obviously doesn't care, right? He's like playing with his paper and his stapler and all kinds of stuff. He's like, when you go into this room, you gotta make a decision. And it's very important. He's like, I've done this a hundred times, blah, blah, blah. Which is like very routine and very yada, yada. I love the fact that in 97, the Laura Roslin, that's not her name. That's her Battlestar Galactica name. But the, the female judge, the woman judge, if you will, um, was like, Take, like making eye contact, telling them to take it very seriously. But I think the messaging in that, like the judge doesn't even care, was very like these types of things happen all the time. This isn't a special thing. And the ending as well, like in the ending, in the 97 version, Juror 3 is like walking out to the elevators and crying. And I feel like that made it about him a little bit more. Whereas with the, you know, and there's like this sense of like release from that. Whereas with the, the, the 57 version, there's just this dissipation. That's like, like what now there's no fanfare, nothing. So those are my reasons. And I also feel very intellectual preferring a black and white movie over a color version. Yeah. Cause they, smug. they, they don't, they don't age the same way as color films do. Oh, they don't? No, they don't. You're right. Right, because we stopped making them. That's true. And so now they just seem old and, a, yeah, very intellectual for choosing a black and white film. So I applaud you on that one. Jason? I am 
waffling in my decision making, but I think that I'm still going to come down on the side of the 97, though perhaps less passionately than before we sort of bandied it back and forth. Um, some of the points about um, perhaps the overacting, I think, in hindsight are, are very valid, and I'm going to keep those in mind the next time I am watching it. Uh, I still, I think, come down on the side of the in, in, both movies are excellent in their time period. The 1950s version just does not speak to me in modern movie attendance. And so the multiracial, multi-ethnic, more diverse jury demonstrating the same problems, I think, is going to drive home messages to people who view it now much more effectively than the intellectual black and white, all white version of the 1957 film. So I think I'm still going to come down solidly in the 97 camp, but with less passion than before we had our conversation tonight. All right. So that just leaves me uh, as the tiebreaker here. Uh, so hmm. I'm Henry. I'm Henry Fonda in this situation. <laughs> Trying to get you to switch your vote. Mm, I see. And I'm juror 12. I don't care. <laughs> You're the ad man. I, I'm the original judge. Whatever, right? <laughs> wow. You make this so hard, Jason. Um, <laughs> right? <clears throat> so I will say that the one that I like more across all sorts of metrics in my own mind, which includes filmmaking, uh, is the 1997 version. Yeah. In all honesty, if you were one of the jurors, which juror would you have been? Based on oh. my personality, I'll, I'll go first. But just a uh, clarification, just on on how I what my self identity is now, map onto a juror. Is that is that what you're saying, mm -hmm. Jordan? Yeah. Okay. Um. Do you need a minute to think about it? No. Uh. <laughs> You're gonna hate me for saying this. Uh you're not gonna no, say, I'm just kidding. You're not gonna say juror eight. You're not allowed to picture eight. I know. I wouldn't I wouldn't picture number eight. I, I while I have idealized versions of myself that include juror number eight, I have far too much anxiety. So I would probably be juror number two. I actually would have put you as the foreman. Oh, that's such a relegatory role. I don't get to say anything. No, he has like this <laughs> dare to dream. Yeah, that's that's fair. Jason, which juror would you be? No question. I, I would. Uh, I don't know if it's self-aggrandizing or not, but I would see myself as juror number four, the one who is just trying to take a non-passionate, what are the facts? What do the facts show me? Kind of analytical approach to it. I I hope I would be juror number four if I can't be eight. Yeah, I would think I would be juror number four too. None of them were like particularly hilarious, so I couldn't see myself in any of them. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I I could also see myself as um, juror number six. Mm -hmm. Gandalf. But see, here's the thing. Yes, Gandalf. But here's the thing. And probably while why why I would never um be selected for a jury for in a murder trial is I am always going to state 
very fiercely that I'm not going to go with guilty at the outset, regardless. And so well, you're drawer number eight. You are. But that's drawer number eight. He said, I don't know if he's not guilty, but I'm not going to vote guilty yet. Right. But I, I don't know if I would then continue to be juror number eight. And that's why I didn't choose. I also was not allowed to per Jordan's rules. Yeah. Um, but. Toxic femininity trying to make the rules. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I like I, I don't think I would. I, I don't think I and that's I'll never be on a murder trial because the. Um, the prosecution would be like, no, nah, we don't want that guy. He's not impartial. But honestly, yeah. that's the definition of impartiality. So I don't know. I think I might change my answer because I think. I think in thinking my way around the whole table. This is horrifying, but I actually think I'm juror 12. Because he's like never on task. Yeah, feckless. Feckless. There we go. <laughs> he just wants to sort of like talk about he wants to play tic-tac-toe was he particularly hilarious no but he was very good looking which i share he tried to be funny several times it just let's like, run it up the flagpole and see who, see who salutes <laughs> no i actually laughed out loud at that. <laughs> so <laughs> i think we know my answer yeah. okay so the feckless conformist Okay. We should write a personality test that's like, which juror are you? Couldn't be worse than the Myers Briggs. <laughs> it wouldn't be worse than the Myers Briggs. Right. Oh, right. That's, but that's there would be saying. slightly less racist people writing it. Yeah, we could say, yeah, we could say that. I want to thank Dr. Jordan Waggy and Jason Spiegelman for joining me today, too, as we just found out battle it out on the 12 angry men stage um jason is technically the winner because i did the tiebreaker but um i think we all know who the real winner is here Hen say it with me henry fonda the listeners <laughs> jason didn't say anything so we don't know who won that one that's <laughs> the kid who was acquitted more yes. Than yes. Um. To to the defendant who didn't really kill his father, because the facts well, we say otherwise. That. No, the facts say otherwise. Jordan, you were convinced. We have a reasonable doubt. There's you were convinced. Doubt, but it's okay. Whatever. You were convinced. <sighs> the next time we do this, can you just like do Home Alone or something? <laughs> <laughs> Not the one with Donald Trump. The good one. Yeah, I was just going to say, only if we use the one where Donald Trump is morphed out of it. <laughs> what Can are, you use any of this? <laughs> not right now. <laughs> what are uh, some of the things going on in either of your realms that you'd like to plug to listeners, Jordan? What's that program oh, yeah, yeah. you direct? Um, the, the crepe, it's pronounced crepe, it rhymes with grape. It's uh, the Collaborative Replications and Education Project. And we support replication work by students in the classroom. So if you are an instructor who wants to have their students do a project and you want all of your stuff ready to go and opportunities for them to contribute to authorship and for you to contribute to authorship, take a look at what we do. You can, um, it's C-R-E-P. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, uh, at Crepe Psych. 
or uh, visit us on the Open Science Framework at osf.io slash WFC6U. That's a, that? that's a URL to remember. It is. It is. I mean, luckily it is a short URL. Jason, URL. what's going on in your world? It's a rural URL. Well, as we are trying to, all of us, make our way out of the pandemic, um, I'm hard at work um, planning the teaching portion of the Eastern Psychological Association Conference, which will be held in March in New York City. And I'm going to tell you, we have a wonderful hotel that is smack dab in the middle of Times Square. Last time I was there, my hotel room looked out at the big shiny sign. So if you are so inclined, uh, I'm also doing some work. I, I don't remember if I mentioned earlier, I think I did on the um, Society for the Teaching of Psychology's Committee for um, travel grants for high school teachers of psychology. And um, we are, uh, there, there's been some conversation about perhaps reworking that grant so that it doesn't just cover travel, but making it a little bit more useful for um, secondary teachers of psychology. So um, if anybody has interest in um, that or giving us some ideas for how reworking that grant might be a little bit more applicable toward your lives, uh, certainly like to hear about it. And um, that's uh, that's what's happening in my realm right now, other than hoping that these virtualizing of conferences goes away soon. Yeah, considering mm. that uh, the goal was to see each other in person next month at the annual conference of teaching, which is now virtual. I haven't seen either of you. In it's been longer since it's the majority of the time I've known you. I haven't seen. I can't. It's not a sense. Never mind. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, since since the last AP in person AP read, yeah, it's been 2019. So it's been very yeah, long. Who knows what's going to happen next year? But hey, here's to 2022 ACT Pittsburgh. I hope you're both going to come. Is it going to be in Pittsburgh? Well, that's that's what I'm told. All right. Good to know. All righty. Thank you both for coming uh, along on this journey with me talking about 12 angry men thank you for having me thank you that's gonna do it for this episode until the next one thanks for listening